Hey, thanks for joining us for another Reality 2.0 podcast. Uh, I am Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles is with us, as always. And hey again, we are super excited to welcome Dave Hughesby back to follow up Ooh. on some of the uh, <laughs> lingering questions we had at the end of the last podcast. Um, so, Dave, why don't you introduce yourself again, just in case anybody missed that episode, which I hope they didn't, but in case. Yeah, you, first of all, you should go back and listen to that one, because it's going to set up this one a lot. Um, my name is Dave Hughesby. Uh, currently, I am the security maven at Hyperledger, which means that my job is to ensure that we live up to the promise of open source software being more secure and more reliable and open and friendly and more available to the users. Um, Hyperledger is part of the Linux Foundation, which if you listen to the first episode, uh, I will tell you is my dream job because I've been a Linux nerd ever since, I don't know, 94, 95, something like that. And uh, yeah. And Linus, if you're listening, I still haven't met you, even though we've been coworkers <laughs> for three years, which would be awesome. I'm a fanboy. So there you go. How's that for an introduction? Uh, that's good. That's great. I would add that there, there are a, a too small number of people who truly get how important individual sovereignty, autonomy, independence, liberty, all of those things, um, agency that not only gave us Linux and an awful lot of what the world depends on, but actually is really important for making markets work and making society work yeah. and making organizations work and, um, and how those things are not opposed to what's social about us, but that we really need to be operating at full capacity and right. that a lot of great comes out of that. And it's sort of like being able to see infrared or ultraviolet. I mean, there are some people who see that and Dave is one of the alphas at that. So that's why I'm excited, excited to have him on. Very kind words. I, I was going to add on to that, that uh, the, the greatest stories in history are acts of defiance. And I don't think Linus Torvalds gets enough credit for his act of defiance. The, the greatest part of the Linux story is that he just decided to write his own technology. He looked around him and said, I don't want to pay for Windows and I don't want to, you know, I can get a license to Unix or whatever. So I'm going to write my own operating system. Why not? I'm not going to ask for permission at all. And what did he do? He created an operating system that took over the world. And an interesting thing about that too is that he, um, you know, and it's the title of his book, you know, his one and only book, uh, Just for Fun. Um, right. I mean, it was, it was an act of defiance, but it wasn't necessarily one of rebellion. It wasn't like, no. I, I, I'm going to go take my bulldozer and knock down Microsoft or something. In fact, oh. it, what was so radical about it is how practical it was for, not only for him, but for lots of other people to just, just jump on a list <laughs> and submit patches. You know, right. just, it's self-empowerment. Hey, it was yeah, I just think everybody, every self that was involved could, could not just weigh in with an opinion. It's like right. they weigh in with code. Like, oh, there's a bug right. over there. Here's a patch. Here's a patch. Here's a patch. Right. You know, and, and maintainers emerged. And uh, what's what is kind of um, uh, 
I don't know what the, the, the forceful about Linus is that um, he doesn't take shit off of anybody though. I mean, that's an interesting thing. It, it, <laughs> I love that just, about his personality. I mean, I mean, he, he's, he's completely, um, he's, I mean, I don't want to say he's totally impolite, but he's just very yeah. determined to be honest. I mean, he's just, he's just totally honest. And, and, uh, and that, you know, that can, that can, bother some people but but when you're running the world's <laughs> the operating system when you're running gravity you know you can't really <laughs> you can't really uh or sunlight you know you can't really uh uh deviate too far from trying to do what's right you know for everybody yeah. that's the that's the thing he's trying to do right for everybody and given that the whole world depends on it and that's that that's an interesting kind of integrity well, I think, I think. That, yeah. that probably goes back to the not asking permission thing. It's the, right. the same, the same yeah. kind of person who's not going to ask for permission is going to run things the way that they want. To run. So, so Dave, unpack a little bit more about not act, asking permission because I don't think it by itself <laughs> as a statement does it quite says it all. Well, right. So um, first of all, I think Linus and I are cut from the same cloth Uh I have a reputation for speaking my mind and it has definitely gotten me in trouble a lot. And I've learned to temper the sharp pointy ends of what I have hold as opinions. Um, but uh, it really is just, I think you've touched on something about he's just trying to be honest. I want to be an honest witness of history is really what I want to be. I, I, I don't, you know, if, if I have any legacy from any of the software I've worked on or the open source projects I've been involved in, it's really that we built technology that allowed us to not lie to each other easier. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that doesn't mean censorship and that doesn't mean, you know, uh, fighting fake news, not even at all. It's just, I want tools that we can use to preserve the knowledge um, going forward. And we'll touch on that later. I think we want to talk about durability of knowledge, but uh, not asking for permission is really important um, in the sense that, uh, to parlay into what we, what really brought this um, episode together uh, over email was that I, I was ranting about how there are some people in the technology world that feel that legislative solutions are the way to go um, to solve the problems of the world, right? And I touched on this last episode where I said that the GDPR and the CCPA are legislative uh, power shifts. And uh, I called them out as being very much like the Magna Carta in the sense that it was, it's, it's designed to create a new detente between the existing uh, holders of power and, and the existing uh, users, right? So like it, the GDPR and CCPA do nothing to challenge the power and supremacy of say fire, uh, sorry, um, Facebook and Twitter and Google, they just are telling them, okay, if you guys are in charge, if you people are in charge, here are the rules that you need to kind of abide by to be in charge. And um, we were talking about user sovereignty last time. And I wanted to point out that the whole theory behind user sovereignty is not asking for permission. And it challenges the current order, the, the order of we are all users that have to submit to the rules that Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, the tech oligarchs set out for us. And I, I don't, I don't go to bed and sleep well at night knowing we have the GDPR and CCPA. 
I go to bed and sleep well at night knowing that with the right application of technology, say crypto uh, encryption and like the new verifiable credential or verifiable containers. I'll talk about why we're changing names, but like the stuff that's coming out of Hyperledger that's allowing us to do decentralized identity and to um, create and transmit verifiable data. And if we can stack those right, and if we go deep enough into the internet stack, like if we go back down to TCP level even, or, or you know maybe even the IP level and start reforming it from the ground up, that I believe we can build fully user sovereign systems, fully decentralized systems that are user centric, place the user above all else, um, which allows us to still be social, but does not create uh, or does not have vulnerabilities in the, in the network or in the system itself that allows the concentration of power and the creation of things like Google and Facebook and Twitter. Right. So when it comes to not asking for permission, um, if we ask Google, Facebook, and Twitter, if we can use their systems to build something like this, their answer is going to be emphatically no, because it challenges their power. And so, yeah. I, I, my point here was what we, we touched on this before the episode a little bit was that I don't believe that legislative shifts in power can ever protect users. Um, even, even for a long, well, mostly over a long period of time, right? We could do maybe some initial, like there might be some ground quote unquote groundbreaking le legislation that goes a you know, long ways in protecting user data and our power. Like we could force legislatively force Facebook to, you know, have data that was standard format or whatever, so that we we're portable or whatever. But I ultimately, I don't think that's going to last because, you know, every two years is an election in this country. And eventually the people who don't like that, who have lots of money and have interest in, in maintaining power and having the freedom to do whatever they want with user data um, will erode that. And so legislative power is nothing that you can take to the bank. Um, it has to be technological and all technological shifts in power are based on just doing it. You don't have to ask for permission. Just do it. I mean, Linus decided to make his own operating system and it, it empowered him as an individual and everybody else who's been involved. And I would argue the whole open source movement, you know, that, that Richard Stallman helped create, um, you know, to give credit where credit's due. That's all about not asking for permission. I mean, for like 20 years in open source, it was people who were moonlighting. We all had day jobs. You know, we worked on Microsoft software. We worked for Microsoft, many of us, or IBM or, you know, Sun Microsystems. And then we would go home at night and we would write patches to the Apache web server, or we would write patches to the Linux kernel, or we would help get uh, secure shell fixed to the, you know, use the new um, crypto algorithms that just came out or whatever, right? So it was all about for many years, it was all about not asking for permission. Um, so, so I, I wondered, okay, so there are a couple, there are several things actually. That I unpack, but, <laughs> so uh, the first and that I want to get to in a little bit later is, so, you know, if te tech should lead the way, the wizards as opposed to the muggles, the, the geeks, is, you know, whatever we want to call ourselves, um, if tech should lead the way, and I believe it should, and how do we accomplish that? But but first, I kind of want to get back to this idea of the origins of open source, because this is something that I've been thinking about and, and we've talked about before, but it's been a while. And, and yeah. that is the, the idea that, so 
so we talk about this this ecosystem that we we all have participated in right we write yeah. patches we review patches we you know it's great fun and and we put this stuff together and 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 we you know improve the world by doing it and but I think that if you consider the number of people working with open source software today, as opposed to, let's say, 20 years ago, I think it's, it's a hugely different group of people. And I think that um, in many ways, the, the people that are doing most of the work in open source are somewhat um, disconnected from the ideals and from the sort of climate where open source started. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you know, we, we like, you know, a lot of people talk about, um, let's say, the privilege of working on open source. It takes a certain, oh, it takes, it takes yeah. a certain type of person to be able to spend their nights and weekends doing cool things like writing patches. I mean, not everybody can do that, and I think that probably had a formative effect on open source and open source culture. But, but, it, but it's a, a lot of things. It's you know, I think people today working on like I work on Drupal. You know, a lot of people work on you know Linux kernel patches and whatever you know project you know you want to name a lot of the people doing those things are really just kind of doing it as part of a job. But when, now that open source is ubiquitous, it's right. not some special cultish side project. It's, it's part of, it's part of, it's mainstream. Any, it's totally mainstream. So, and it has corporate bull politics too. Ex exactly. That. Yes. Pardon <laughs> my language. No, it's, totally it's okay. Fine. But, but you, you, you don't need that scrappy sense of, 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 um, of, not asking permission or, 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 or what have you. And you don't necessarily, you don't need to, to do it as a, a moonlighting thing in addition to your day job, because many times it is your day job. And, and before that reason, it becomes merely a tool. It's just a thing that you use to get your job done, to make your product, to, um, to, to run your systems, to sell whatever it is you're selling, you know, yeah, and so, so what effect, it, when I'm, this is a very long way of getting around to the fact that I wanted your input on how you think that the changes in the open source climate ecosystem, what have you, um, how you think that that has sort of impacted the current state of things and the future of open source? It's a completely right. different perspective. That's great. That's a good question. Um, because I deal with this every day. In fact, it is my day job to care about open source. I'm paid to do it. Um, it really comes down to passion versus paycheck. And I think you're going to be surprised about my position on this. I'm a very passionate guy. And I really believe in, you know, that scrappy, not asking for permission, you know, moonlighting, like, you know, garage engineering, for lack of a better term. Um, but I got to tell you, if it wasn't for the large tech corporations getting behind open source projects as, as uh, vigorously as they have, open source today would be a totally different thing. I actually thank my lucky stars every day that Microsoft has embraced it and that IBM has embraced it and that Google has embraced it and that Mozilla exists right mm -hmm. now that sounds like i'm shilling for my paycheck and i get it but it isn't it is not here's why if you were in open source early on say like in the mid 90s when 
everybody was actively fighting this, you know, insurgent communist software development mechanism or whatever the heck they called it back then. I, I remember everybody's calling me a commie because I felt like, mm-hmm. you know, I was give I was giving away my effort and they couldn't see why, you know, like, oh yeah, you starry eyed, you know, uninformed communist, right? Like, okay, sure. Um, but back then, one of the big failings of open source was that it was really hard to deliver on features that nobody cared about. Because by definition, open source only made software that solved uh, use cases that people cared about. But that's not always how software gets developed. I mean, the reason Microsoft lasted for so long is because they figured out how to get paid to write software that, you know, maybe didn't, people didn't know they needed right? I mean, Steve Jobs is super famous for saying, don't ask consumers. They have no idea what they want, right? I mean, that's a paraphrase, but he, you know, then he stood up in front of all of us and showed us a phone and he goes, you don't need a stylus, use your finger. And everybody just slapped their forehead and went, oh my gosh, why didn't we think of that, right? Um, So he was right to a certain extent. So there was definitely a, to get back to my main point, there was definitely a blind spot in the early open source um, projects in that they would only scratch the itches they had and they weren't really looking out to the market and wondering what itches do they have? You know, it really was a selfish endeavor. I just want a web server I can run on my own computer and I wanted to serve up these files. But then companies would say, oh yeah, but we think there's other companies or other people that would want these other features. So we're going to add those in whether we know it or not. And then we're going to sell it right in their commercial offering. And, and really what we've seen in the last, say, 20 years since the creation of the Linux Foundation and the Mozilla Foundation is that um, with the, the marrying of corporate and independent interests, uh, I think open source has really matured. And as a result, we took over the world. I mean, once we got out of our own basements and solving our own problems and, and were able to have paid programmers uh, who were following the same rules as open source. They were submitting patches. They were going undergoing review. You know, they, their patches weren't always landed for instance. Right. Um, but they were paid to try and they were paid to try to add features that weren't immediate itches of the core contributors of a project. And that's when we started to see projects like Drupal, as you mentioned, um, which has a huge user base and solves a ton of problems for people. Um, way more than it was initially envisioned. Um, we saw the first billion dollar uh, company, open source company, right? Which was, uh, was my, my sequel valued more than a billion dollars than Red Hat first. I mean, Red Hat was just acquired. So you can't really say Red Hat was worth that. Uh, anyway, no. we started to see billion dollar companies yes, based on specific projects. Yeah. Right. I think I think the difference between Red Hat and MySQL is that Red Hat was lots of things and MySQL was just one thing. And right. and they were acquired first by uh um Sun, weren't they? And then Sun by Oracle. By Oracle, so yeah. It was kind of yeah. hard to tell, I think. Well, okay, so Some people as might they remember. mature yeah. Yeah. To illustrate my point, it was that's when open source projects started to look outward and to realize that they were real competitors in a market and started to meet the needs of a market. And that's very difficult to do when you're just a volunteer and having corporations come in and pay developers to contribute was really the key ingredient there. And that's when we saw open source just explode. And that's why the Linux foundation is, is as big as it is now. 
and why is it is it is a, as successful as it is now um, because we had that that technological shift so my my take on the passion versus paycheck is this we need both to make open source projects ubiquitous and to really have an impact in the world we need both however if you're one of those open source developers that's paid you know let's say you work for IBM and you're uh, paid to work on Hyperledger Fabric, I would suggest that you adopt an open source project that you're not paid to work on, but you have a personal um, connection to in some way. You care about it, you like the developers, you know, the maintainers, or you use it. Uh, I think we're getting to that point now where everybody needs to start realizing we all have responsibilities to be the passion people in a project. Like I'm paid to work on Hyperledger, but I'm a passionate contributor to several other open source projects and I'm not going to dox myself here because I do so anonymously. I have almost always contributed to open source anonymously. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a very passionate contributor to things that are totally unrelated to distributed ledgers. Um, and so I want to be that voice that's like, no, 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 this is the right thing. I want, you know, there's the, the passion check on, on the corporate, uh, priorities. Although I would anyway. say sometimes the struggle to get to that point where you are able to do your, let's say, paycheck contribution and additional contribution. It's, it, I mean, right. it's tough. I mean, that's how I, yeah. we have this podcast for that reason, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah right, right. Passion projects. So speaking of that, and, and going back to what I was getting at earlier about how, so how does tech lead the way? and passion projects, that might be a good segue for you to talk about some ideas that you've had. Um, <laughs> if, you, let it, if you have a certain passion, maybe there's an outlet for that. <laughs> yeah, so if you listen to the previous podcast, I talked about um, this theory that, I, I, I don't know that I can take credit for it because the term itself, I, I'm going to be publishing some things on Medium here in the next couple of weeks, um, and I'll send it to you so you, maybe you can put it in the notes. Um, but I've written a couple of fairly long papers about an idea I call user sovereignty. And the first time I heard the term was uh, when I worked at Mozilla. I was on the security team for Firefox and Firefox OS before that. Um, and actually, um, Mitchell Baker was the first to ever really publicize that term. If you Google around user sovereignty, you'll see that her timestamp predates everybody else's. And it's this idea that um, tech services, tech platforms should be user oriented. And that as technologists designing new systems, we kind of owe it to our users. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, right? Like it, we owe it to tech users who are unsophisticated to create systems that aren't poison meat, you know, that is not going to ruin their lives. It's not going to expose them to um, social consequences. I, I would argue that Twitter's worst contribution to society is the fact that people can actually lose their jobs. You know, it, let's take Roseanne Barr, for instance, at face value. Let's believe her explanation that she was on some, you know, mind altering you know, antidepressant or something, and it had a glass of wine, and then she texted, she tweeted out something that just totally ruined her whole career. Like, I know that Twitter likes to hide behind the, oh, we're just a platform and whatever, but they're making editorial decisions. 
and they're fostering a culture on their platform where if people say the wrong thing, they have real world consequences of losing their jobs and now they're losing their bank accounts. And, you know, I, I just, I would not be able to sleep at night if I worked at Twitter at all. Is it, because, is it Twitter or is that just human nature though? Well, I know that people get angry and want to lash out at other people and that's human nature. But to foster an environment where that was okay and to weaponize the efficiency in which that is done, uh, that kind of falls on Twitter in my opinion, right? I, I, I think by requiring real names, you know, or like at least on Facebook requires real names, but by doing things that allow them to be tied back to real world identities really puts people at risk. And, and uh, you know, like the whole thing about, I know I'm going from Twitter to Facebook here, but like Twitter and Facebook, they kind of give off this idea that you're at a cocktail party with your friends. And so your reasonable sense of expect, uh, privacy is that, oh, I'm just here talking to my friends, but that's not at all what the privacy on Facebook is. You know, they take your posts and it's public by default and they, you know, there's all this stuff in which you can be, the things you say can be broadcast to an audience you didn't intend for it to be well, broadcasted to. Well, it, it, they're both deeply weird in the sense that you get a sense of free speech, but you can only, it's like you can only have free speech at a shopping mall. If you want your free speech to be heard by anybody, you have to go to the shopping mall where everything you're doing is being monitored and you can only speak in certain ways and you can only approve of what somebody else says in a certain way. And oh, by the way, you're going to be advertised that all the time based on what's known about you. It's completely bizarre, but it's of course easy to do and it's very normative. Um, right. Uh, but it's, you know, and, and that's part of the thing that's, you know, one of the things that's just especially strange about it in our time, which is that we're, uh, they are effective. I mean, they are effective in the sense that um, if you want to talk to a lot of people that you know or have known in the past and, and want to stay in touch with, it's a very efficient way to do that. And right. it's also... Whatever I mean, happened to my crush from middle school, right? <laughs> exactly. I know. I mean, it's, I mean, and there's so many like onion stories in it. You know, man gets bored getting in touch with the person he knew 40 years ago, you know, and uh, <laughs> because, yeah, you have nothing in common now. You know, and, right. uh, and there are exceptions to that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm on Facebook for that and there, but, and a couple of other things, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on a, a group called, I take pictures of transmitter sites. I'm not kidding. It is yeah. 13,000 of the most durable and devoted and really professional broadcast engineers on earth. It's probably the, but I, and the amazing thing to me is as far as I can tell, nobody gets advertised that in it at all. And I think if anybody it's a really great captive market, but I, I'm not sure it's all that efficient. What, I mean, what they do with advertising, but maybe it is. Uh, well, and, and, but here's, here's the interesting part. And this is, this is, I think this goes to one, at least one of your points, which is that there's, I mean, if I walk into a shopping mall, I can walk around and I know what's there. It, it hasn't shapeshifted while I'm in it. Whereas Twitter and Facebook shapeshift constantly because their algorithm is busy observing you and who you interact with. And so the Facebook and Twitter you see are not the Facebook and Twitter that I see, you know, and that, you know, the one that my cousin who's totally into right-wing politics sees and the one that my other cousins that are totally into left-wing politics see are entirely different. They're nothing like each other. And, right. you know, and, and the one I see, which is, 
intentionally filtered so there are, there's almost no politics in it and all relatives and other people I've seen in the past. And I don't want any of the other crap. I'm, I'm seeing that, you know, and mm-hmm. these are not the same thing. And, but if you're in the real world where everybody's independent and everybody is not, is connected directly to each other somehow, you know, you meet somebody on the street, you're directly connected to them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it may be a passing thing, but you see them, you you're, uh, this is a good point you made last time. You're anonymous to each other, meaning in the sense that you don't have a name yeah. yet with each other. You Correct. may share your names. You may or may not remember them, but you've gone through a, a ritual, a social ritual that has privacy built into it, which is you're busy respecting right. each other to some degree. Right. And we don't have that online yet. I haven't invented it yet. And we're certainly not going to get it from the giants that are in, a, in an entirely different business. They're in the spying business for the most part. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So to recap what you were saying about the draw of Facebook is that it provides a really good discovery mechanism, um, both permissioned and unpermissioned discovery, right? Being able to track down your crush from middle school is unpermissioned discovery. You don't have to ask that person or call them ahead of time to get permission to find their feed on Facebook. So that it, it really feeds into the sort of the voyeuristic nature of humans and how attractive voyeurism is to us. Let's just admit it. Everybody loves to, you know, cyber stalk a little uh, for whatever reason. Because um, it does that, definitely. So it's a discovery mechanism. But then it's also really good for coherence in the sense that once you've connected with somebody, you can reconnect with them despite whatever circumstances have happened in your life. Um, or on the network, for instance, you can you know, I can message you on Facebook right now and then I can get on an airplane and go to Hong Kong and I can message you on Facebook there. And it works the same no matter where I'm at on the network. And to go back, to tie this back to what we were talking about earlier and, and sort of why not asking for permission is, is important here and what uh, a technological shift in power against the existing order would look like it would have to be a system that's not only user sovereign, which I'll recap them here. That's uh, uh, fully encrypted by default, um, private by default, um, meaning like uh, all the data is mine. I own it and any sharing of my data is really done um, at my discretion and can be revoked. Uh, Everything is in standard formats and protocols. Um, There is, Let's see, what was the other one? Oh, balance of power. Um, anyway, it's the idea that I have total control, right? I, I can look anonymous or pseudonymous, or I can be me and provably me um, and everything in between, and I control my data, right? So that's user sovereignty, right? So something that's not asking permission that would challenge the existing power structure through technological means would be to go deep into the internet stack. And what I mean by that is, you know, you've got the web, right? And then there's HTTP below that. And then there's TCP IP below that, right? Um, there's a, a protocol stack. If we go deep enough into the stack and we start building things like a ubiquitous mixnet that uh, divorces traffic from the originators and recipients. So think like Tor and hidden services on the Tor network where I can browse uh, in such a way that observers of my traffic don't know where my, my packets are going. And 
people can run web services or other services that are Tor hidden services. They can receive clients and I have no idea who those clients are and they have no idea where I'm at, right? It hides the service, right? So we need to go deep enough into the stack to build a ubiquitous anonymizing routing uh, layer. And then on top of that, build fully user sovereign social systems. And this is an extremely, extremely difficult problem. Um, what I'm going to be publishing in the next week are the articles I've written about user sovereignty. But over the last month, I've been researching just how do you do decentralized, you know, user sovereign discovery? Um, how would I find my crush from middle school, both in a permissioned and a permissionless way, um, so that we can at least have parity of features with Facebook, um, but still be respectful of my privacy and of her privacy. Um, so it, it, it's extremely difficult and I don't pretend to even know what the answer is, but I know that there is one because it, it becomes a, an emergent property of the underlying layers, right? If we build this fully ubiquitous mixnet, and then there's a way for us to publish data in such a way that um, if you can pre-image me in some regard, you can find my data. So yeah. I'm going to go into create, I'm going to go into cryptography here. So if you take a, like a text phrase, so like, you know, my name is David Hughes me, right? That phrase, that text, and you feed it into a hash function say like SHA-256, you get a giant number, okay? Now I can give that giant number out to everybody. That's called a pre, it's a commitment, a pre-commitment or commitment, cryptographic commitment. And you can hold this number and I can prove to you that I created that by giving you the phrase in which you feed into the SHA-256 algorithm to get that number. It's a one-way function, right? So it's a pre-image, that phrase, you know, my name is Dave Hughesby, that phrase is the pre-image of that hash. Okay, so if we had a discovery system where, you know, I, let's just call her Miss Alcorn. She might know who I, she's not going to listen to this podcast, but my crush from middle school. <laughs> so this is your actual crush. This is not, yep. nothing, nothing I'm going to figure this out. Okay, good. Right. So I, I don't want to dox her here, but and she was a lovely, you know, I had a huge crush on her. Um, her last name was Alcorn, and let's just leave it at that if I, I know enough details about her that I could go onto Facebook and find her. Okay. What I want to build now is a system where if I know enough details about her, I can do a data addressable search where I know the data. So give me the rest of it. So if I can do like, I know her last name, I know her first name. I, you know, I knew, I know where she grew up. I know which school she went to. I know what high school she graduated from. That actually should be enough data to get a little bit more data that is more recent. And maybe that comes in the form of a request to her, which she then can approve or deny. So that would be a permission-based discovery system. Now, if she wanted to be like, say she is marketing herself, trying to build a reputation of whatever, and she's put data out there that is permissionless to search, then if I knew a pre-image of her, then I could find the data she's published in a way that doesn't require her permission for me to retrieve. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like this would give us full parity, feature parity of Facebook 
but it would be entirely user sovereign because Miss Alcorn would be in total control of whether I can find her or not. You know, I don't have to ask for permission to get the stuff she has put out there to be discovered permissionlessly. But if I wanted to, you know, get her whatever quote unquote address or what, you know, to send her a message, I might have to request permission to do that. And this becomes like a text system that is much more in line with our actual social rituals that you were talking about, right? If I bump into somebody on the street, uh, I, I might be, you know, hey, I like you, you know, like, uh, do you mind if I send you a message sometime? Can I have your phone number so I can text you? That's permissioned, right? That's a very normal interaction. Uh, if I go my, you know, to my, uh, one of my children's sports teams, right? And the coach will hand out a, a phone list, a phone tree. Here are the phone numbers of all the parents. So if you guys need to, you know, yeah. coordinate who's bringing snacks or whatever, that's a permission list. We all consent to that, right? So these are actual social rituals that we participate in already that are comfortable to us that Facebook has totally, from, you know what, you're going to have to bleep this. Facebook's totally f***ed this up, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they haven't made it in line with what we consider normal. Right. It, it goes back to that. What's their reasonable expectation of privacy? I think of it as a, you know, most people like my mom, who was an unsophisticated user until I told her all about Facebook, thought it was a cocktail party with her friends. And then I showed her that random people who don't know her can see what she's saying. And she was aghast. She was like, no way. She couldn't believe it. And uh, yeah, we just need to have tech that reflects what we consider quote unquote normal social interactions with this right permission. So, so here's a, a question, whether it, 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 I love the sort of the schema of what you're just describing. Um, and I'm imagining, I, I was thinking back on the crush that I had from the third to the ninth grade. There was a six straight years, this girl, right. And her, her last <laughs> Do name, we get a last name <laughs> Hunter. Her last name is Hunter. This is, and her first name was a common name. So, she's invisible and she hasn't kept in touch with, you know, like she didn't go to the high school that everybody else went to. Neither did I. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is no, I mean, and we're both like in our seventies now, like she might not even be alive. Right. And, right. and um, there's no, the only thing I know is where she went to high school and college. I, and, and I actually talked to somebody who works in the alumni office at the college. And they said, the one thing that they never do is tell anybody anything about right, alumni, exactly. right? Including right. playing the role that you're talking about, which is, you know, we can intermediate. So-and-so is trying to find you. They don't want to do that. Right. right? So, right. um, so it's a, so the, the, uh, um, so I'm wondering whether or not one can, and I suppose, I suppose in some ways a, a very public person like me is pretty easy to find, right? If somebody wanted to, uh, I mean, she was very popular and I wasn't. This is why it was an unrequited crush, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but at this point in my life, I'm, I'm well known enough that there are lots of people I knew from the distant past that can find me. But yeah. she's not. Yeah. She's not. I, or if she is, she may have a different name, but there's just so many people with that last name. Who the hell knows, right? And, right. and, it's, and at this point in my life, it's pure curiosity. We, you know, we had a, a little bit of an interaction. Both our parents were on the faculty in the, in the, in the grade school that we went to, but... Um, but that's about it. I mean, there's really no reason to do that. But, right. but the question is, is there within your schema a, a way that people have overlapping, 
who would want to find each other or where one could seek the other one out. And, and part of thinking that you replicate some of what it is that Facebook surfaces for the whole freaking world, but do it in a way where you're still anonymous and private, right? You know, yeah. and, but it's not part of a centralized service because people, and these centralized services are even, even given the advantages of giantism that you were going into before, you're glad that Microsoft now is behind Linux. Um, right. And, and could only have done the things that it's done. And there are things that only Apple could have done. You could only do with scale, but, but getting some of those effects without the giant company behind it and the parochial limited self-interest of those companies, uh, you know, so make sure they're not involved. I'm not sure it could be done, but I'm hopeful hearing what you were saying that maybe it can. Theoretically it can. Um, that's what I'm talking about. It's like eschewing the existing structures at all completely. I, you know, I, I'm usually the last person to say, throw it all out and start from scratch. Um, I've been a software engineer long enough to know that's never the answer. And in fact, I'm pretty vocal about criticizing some of my, um, say, colleagues, not direct colleagues at the Linux Foundation, but people I have worked with or work at other companies. I've been pretty critical of them when they have made that decision. Oh, throw it all over and start back. You know, it's like, no, your job yeah. as CTO is to ship software. You know, your job as maintainer of a project is to ship software, right? If you're constantly going back and starting from scratch, uh, you're never going to ship, right? Um there's a reason why, you know, I don't mean this is a really awful dig, but I used to work at uh, Second Life at Linden Lab working on Second Life. And has Second Life, has Linden Lab shipped Second Life 2.0 yet? I mean, it's been it does it still, years. It does still exists, doesn't it? Somehow? it? It does. Oh, it does. And Sansar is their, their um, follow on to the original Second Life. And I don't think it's shipped yet, or maybe it has, I don't know. But it like, it took them years. It's like the, the Duke Nukem Forever or whatever that took, a decade and a half to ship you know, mm. the follow-up to the original Duke Nukem. Like they kept throwing it away as and restarting over from the beginning because the technology got better, graphic got better and all that stuff. So just know that I'm usually the last person to say that we should throw away everything and, and start over. Um, and that it needs to be a significant reason to motivate and justify that effort. But all I have to say to everybody who's listening to this is look around you. Just look around you. I lay most of what's going on in our world at the feet of Twitter. Really? Oh, Twitter in particular? And Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, just look, technology is a wonderful tech. You know, what we've built with social media is wonderful. But, and it has amplified and magnified all of the great things in humanity. But because it was such a sledgehammer and it was unnuanced. It wasn't carefully constructed. Uh, it's also amplified all of the worst of humanity. And I don't blame the initial engineering effort as a failure. I don't blame it on them because they didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know what it would be like to have 2 billion people in a single network and have them be able to permissionlessly find each other and, you know, message them or attack them or dox them or whatever. We didn't know, but now we do. So what are we going to yeah. do with that information? And this is where it comes to people who feel the same as me. We need to get together people who have the abilities that I have, which is writing software, understanding cryptography, 
it's time. It's time for us to start thinking about maybe we do need to go deeper in the stack. Um, the web itself has never been decentralized. In fact, one of the articles I'm going to post or publish in a week or so here is one I've already written, and it's about how the web is not hasn't ever been decentralized. You know, I think I mentioned it in the last episode. Give us the short version of that. Yeah. Well, the short version is that you know the web was barely 18 months old when um, it was InfoSeq, I think. Right. Uh, yeah, the first was one of the very engine. first search engine. Yeah. Their business model was monetizing the and the business intelligence gathered from what people were searching. And they also charge money. I paid them. I yes. paid them. They charge by the search, which is right. would have been a, a better system. I mean, if you just everybody uses it, pays. Not that it would have survived. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. But we didn't have micropayments back then, and now we have the Lightning Network on Bitcoin. So we should use it and maybe consider that as a search engine model for the future. But yeah, they they monetized the web. Um, it wasn't even two years old, and they were already doing you know pay per thousand impressions of ads. They were already spying on searches and um, they, they were part of the drive for cookies, which allowed us to weaponize that surveillance and, and to really build the surveillance. But was, was that the web itself? I mean, it, I mean it, if the web is pretty much everything you could do with HTTP, with a protocol, yeah. um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, is that the web or is that just, well, you know, a primary I mean, ask, way of using it? Ask Tim Berners-Lee, didn't he envision it to be a read-write web? And didn't he envision yeah. everybody having their own web servers? Right, he and, did. And, 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 right. and you know, but basically it was a way to, to share documents. I mean, that, that's right. what he thought. It was high-energy physicists sharing documents right. at a distance, you know. Right, and, and, I, and I don't yeah. blame him, but because he didn't know the nine problems of, that all distributed systems have to solve. And, but now we do. Yeah. We know what they are. And which I pointed out, you wrote up and uh, we talked about <laughs> it in the last one of these. Right. Right. Exactly. We know what the problems are and we know how to solve each one of them. And for whatever reason, business advantage, you know, business models or whatever, we typically choose, or in fact, up until this point, every system has chosen to either not solve a problem, which opens them up to corporate capture by a corporation coming in and solving the problem. I mean, I'm looking straight at you, Coinbase, for Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin doesn't solve some of the problems, and so Coinbase is now worth $8 billion for solving that problem. Um, uh, you know, and I'm looking at you, GitHub, uh, because Git doesn't solve some of the problems, and GitHub's now worth billions of dollars because they solved those problems. So there hasn't been a system yet that has done an earnest effort to solve all nine problems of distributed systems with fully decentralized user sovereign solutions. That's what I want to build. And uh, I, I'm going to launch a website here in the next day or two. I'm going to set up a Slack because that's the best thing we have at the moment and a mailing list. And I think I'm going to spin up an instance of Gogs, which is like a self-hosted GitHub. Um, and uh, I want to just, I'm going to start working on it. If anybody else wants to join me, great. That's awesome. But if you um, want to commit to that, two-day timeline uh, maybe we can release at the same time <laughs> <laughs> well it'll be over the next couple of days for sure i'll send you an email when it's up but i already own the the correct domain i think and uh, you start putting all the the stuff i've written on medium and you know i'm gonna come out of hiding i have been an a an anonymous or pseudonymous contributor to open source my entire career 
because I worked for companies where my involvement was, would have been frowned upon, right? Um, and I had to hide which projects I was involved with. Uh, but I think the time now is, has come for me to kind of step out of the shadows um, and, and start working on this stuff and start talking about it publicly. Um, but yeah, I just... So, so, so David, what I, I want to ask you, I want to go to your, the thing you're setting up, or you're, and, and not just that you're coming out of the dark, but, um, <laughs> but, but that you're, you're going to create instruments by which something gets done. There yeah. are, in, in my own life, for example, there are, I'm on a countless number of lists. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of them are devoted to, let's all co-think this wonderful thing we need to do to change the world. And yeah. what I want out of some of them, I, I mean, I want them to focus on, give me some, give me a freaking outcome. I mean, give me, right. make something happen. I want output. And I've led one of these projects for a long time. And I, and I just want developer. I want developers to show up and developers yeah. to make stuff that other people can look at. And then if they're, if they're developers themselves, they can, they can join the, the party uh, and if they're not, they can at least uh, critique it. And is that what you see coming out of your thing? Uh, it's not going to be a think tank. No, I'm going to be working on it. And uh, if you want to come help, I'll give you tasks. Or if you see something <laughs> I've missed, that's great. You know, great. Yeah. And um, I have a, a, a very strong interest in taking these ideas to a broader market. So anybody who wants to come and and contribute to those ideas. Uh, you know, you'll get a byline in whatever books we write and sell or whatever, that kind of thing. So um, I am a developer. I'm not, well, I, you know, I'd spend a lot of time thinking, but I don't see myself as a policy person or a, a deep thinker. It's just, I, I've been around too long. And so I have too many thoughts in my head now. And I, I'm just going to be writing software and I would love anybody else who wants to help. Um, that's it really. I'm not, this is not a pie in the sky. Let's all get smart people. Actually, I, I want just the opposite. I want people who want to write code. If you think so, you're smart, <laughs> great. Well, you know, the, the, dumb the, programmers, but there's, no, there's, there's other things. Some too, of the so. best man. I, I, know, I, I, I like to think of myself as maybe one of those. I don't Look, I just yeah, want someone who wants to do something. This is a, this is about action. Um, and uh, because we have nine problems of distributed systems to solve in a fully user sovereign and decentralized way. Some of those have really hard problems that haven't been solved yet. And I don't pretend to know how to solve them. I have a rough idea. I have a rough set of rules as my framework, right? I can spot, it's like pornography. It's like, uh, you know, I can't define it, but if you show it to me, I can point, I can tell you whether it is or not. Right. So like if you come up with an idea, to solve one of the problems, I can tell you whether it's centralized or not, whether it's user sovereign or not. But I don't know, I couldn't be the person who's like, here's how you solve this in a user sovereign sure. way. But I mean, but that's how problems get solved, right? I mean, I, right. You know, I joke about being a <laughs> crappy programmer, but really I think my approach is not unreasonable. I mean, you, you, you dive in and you start doing it and eventually you'll find the right way to do it. Or, you know, the, right hopefully or maybe not you know maybe just diving in and getting it done is is the most important step right we, this we, may we, be a lone wolf project doc it really may be i don't you know. well no well it may be and it may not be but here's here's a good thing about 
um, having the you know the nine rules of distributed systems. Is that what it is again? Just nine. Right? There are nine problems. There's nine okay. fundamental problems. Okay. So I what I, I love about you're coming out with the numbered things. You had a six of something else too. I remember. Yeah, there's six it, principles of user sovereignty. Those are the rules. That's that, that's that would be the key. Okay, let's take that one. Six principles because. Um, yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about what happened with identity with when Kim Cameron, who happened to be working at Microsoft at the time, but he came there by acquisition. Yeah. He was not internal um, in 04 and in late 04 to early 05, he wrote um, the seven laws of, of, of identity, identity. And, part, yep. and, and, you know, which had things like minimum disclosure for constrained use, personal control yep. and consent, justifiable parties. It has taken 16 years before finally the, it's starting to look like this is happening. But yeah. those rules have guided people in the meantime. And, and, and the clever thing about them at Microsoft at the time was that Microsoft was sort of in deep heat with the feds on, uh, and, and had now like fleets of lawyers they didn't used to have. Right. And, but by calling them laws rather than axioms or principles or something else like that, um, right. And he was an engineer, and because it was an engineering company, somebody could come to him and say, "We don't like that. We're going to develop this other thing." And they, he'd say, "Well, this is this is a law." <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, right. And then they say, "Fundamental oh, principles." Oh, okay, okay, that's yeah. good. You know, they're independent they of engineering. They're like, laws yeah, that's my right. point. It's like yeah. you're naming a bunch of stuff that's independent of engineering, and yet can guide the engineering. Like, wait a minute, did I? Did, right. Does this have minimum disclosure? Does it have a constrained right. use? Does it have? Um, right. is, is the other is the other party one that belongs here? Um, right. You know, that are we kind storing of, things in open and standard protocols? And exactly. Yeah. Standard formats. Are we using strong encryption always? You know, are we using what, not who, for authorization? Are we absolutely pseudonymous by default? Absolutely private by default? Those are the principles of user sovereignty. You know, and uh, yeah, I get it. That's cool. Um, Kim Cameron actually heavily influenced me. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, you know, reading his book and then it got me thinking along the lines of like, well, what would a system that respected users, you know, I, I've always, you know, what would a system respected users look like? You know, I've always wanted to have my own business, you know, my own startup. I've been in a number of startups, but I've always wanted to be like employee zero of a startup. And I always wanted our motto to be respectful technology. Because that should be the underlying principle of everything we do is that it respects the users of our technology. Uh, you know, I really feel like this goes back to the, the, the endless human struggle of, of industrialization and, and commoditization, which is, you know, if you're creating something for, for consumption of unsophisticated users, you have a responsibility to them. I mean, it's Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, right? Um, but it, it is interesting that you brought up Kim Cameron because definitely heavily influenced me in the idea of like, you know, there must be a list of rules that if followed, you will get a system that does respect the users. And uh, you did mention that we, you know, his ideas and, and the, the principles of identity are, are finally coming to market. I, I'm lucky enough to be at Hyperledger, which is the home of uh, self-sovereign identity, right? For lack of a better term, or for lack of a better, um, you know, I guess home. There's, there's also the decentralized well, it's, it's, it's taking it on, and is there a bunch of code bases there, right? Right. You know, yeah. I know about Indie, but there are others that have spun off of Indie yeah, and the Aries and Aries, and, and stuff, you know, yeah. and and people can work on those, and yeah, and they don't own them, right? I mean, it's like right. the 
you know, at Linux Journal a thousand years ago, we came up with this little principle that, you know, what's, what's a, you know, open source as well. It's what yeah. nobody owns, everybody can, uh, and uh, everybody can use and anyone can improve, right? Yeah. So, um, and of course, owning is, you know, copyright does, you know, and, and having licenses and stuff like that do, do presume some degree of ownership. So, but, but even that is not um, an encumbrance. I mean, you just basically have to respect what the intentions of the original creators and the recreators, you know, have had. Um, but, but there's a, there's a, a, a context for the respect, right? You, you, you right. have a set of understood, a set of understood rules, you know? Right. So, um, so I think, yeah, go. Well, go. yeah. So that brings me to something else that you mentioned before, and I want to make sure we, we mention it before we go. And I think you, you've talked about it a, li- a bit just now, but maybe a little louder for those in the back. <laughs> um, is the, the, you know, <laughs> What is the That's harm in uh, non-user sovereign systems? That's something that you mentioned in, in our email thread. And, and I think you talked about it. You know, the, the, the reason we're in our current situation, however you want to define that, um, is- I left it undefined on purpose. I, I yes, think it I, needs to, I think, I think everybody needs to fill in the blanks for yeah, however it matters fair. for them. Everyone, yes, everyone yeah. has their own definition of that because we all perceive the world in different ways and that's great. Um, right. But there, are, there is potentially harm done by systems that are non-user sovereign. And, and I, think, I think it's useful to explicitly state what they are. And I wondered if you could do that for us. Well, I mean, I touched on some of it earlier. Uh, I guess the most obvious one is like when my mother discovered to her horror that Facebook was not a cocktail party of her friends. You know, she, the, the, uh, the privacy rules that govern Facebook do not reflect a normal, and by normal, I mean your average, you know, Joe Nobody's reasonable expectation of privacy. It, it gives off this idea that you have this, that it matches your reasonable expectation, expectation of privacy, but it doesn't. And now people are getting more savvy to this. They know that they're being marketed to. They know that, they're, that they are the product, that they're being farmed and all that stuff. But I think a lot of people have just capitulated in the sense that they don't feel like they can have any power. They all want a really nice iPhone and they all really want to have the features of Facebook, but they, but they don't like that aspect of it. And they realize that's just sort of like the deal with the devil, I guess, right? And people just shrug and go, okay, I mean, I guess that's what I have to accept to use this. And the harm of these centralized systems is not only is there their existence or the participation in these systems bleeding over into the real world because they're not private by default, synonymous by by default, you don't have to use your real name. So if you are, you know, altering your mind for whatever reason, I know that that's becoming a thing that's a lot more common these days, not only just with alcohol, but with drugs of all kinds, people say things and they make mistakes. And user sovereign systems amplify those mistakes so greatly that it harms them to a much greater degree than it has ever done in human history before. I mean, maybe modern history, like maybe back in the day, if you, you know, pissed off the wrong person, they would just shoot you and there was no like legal system. And that would be considered like a really bad consequence to, you know, you having a bad day. But I think in a modern system where we, believe in equality before the law 
you know, and, and innocent before proven guilty and due process, that the consequences of these non-user sovereign systems is that um, there's so much more pain that can be brought up on you that doesn't rely on our traditional legal <laughs> system uh, that these systems have enabled. I mean, just a, like 10 years ago, it was unheard of for somebody to say something like there were a lot of assholes in open source, right? I'm just going to say <laughs> that there were a lot of really bad yeah. apples and everybody back then just shrugged and were like, yeah, they're crabby. You know, like <laughs> you probably have a bad life or something's probably going wrong in your life. And they, people tended to have a lot more empathy, but I think the, the thing that we get with Facebook and, and Twitter, you know, of all places is that, and YouTube is that um, we're reaching a lot more people who may not have a, a, as well-informed and patient response to people they disagree with. And in fact, I, I would argue that I think that the algorithms for people's feeds are designed to create addiction. And so they are designed to elicit emotional response I think it's very much like a digital cigarette. And I think that those emotional responses are pushing us out of our, what is it? Our amygdala, the, the reasoned part of us to like oh, the, yeah, no, the emotional part of it, right? Yeah. Like it's turning off our higher cognitive reasoning. And, you know, you go to Facebook and you're like, these assholes, you know, how can I harm these people? I hate these people, right? And that's doing that well, on it, mass. It, it, it's, it's doing it on purpose. It's, you know, it, it, yes. it, it looks for an emotional response. And if, and if right. you got angry at that or, or, or liked that, I mean, there's more of that going on than the other. But it, it is formulaic and, and it is addictive and, it, and, right. and it's addictive on purpose. And it also tends to, you know, push people into, into tribal categories. I mean, that's one mobs. of the, it's creating mobs. Yeah. It, it, it creates mobs and, it, and, and distrust and a whole bunch of other things like that. I right. mean, it's just, and right. I, I was thinking right. that it, it, the metaphor for, in a way of Facebook is the, you know, the, the 10,000 story apartment building, that's all glass and, uh, you know, with glass floors and glass ceilings and anybody can right. teleport to any other place that they want. And, and but you don't know it's all glass, <laughs> you know. It's sort of like, right. but it really is. And right. and that's, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I've I've been noodling on this a lot, which is that um, there's nothing in in our bodily experience that is like the spacelessness of the internet or of the web right. or of any parts of it. And there there is no, you know, like you're you're somewhere in the U S now and, and uh, Catherine's and we're in three different places in the U S but we're all on calls every day where we're people right. all over the world who are present with each other while they're physically greatly distant. And it takes the inverse square law out of the, uh, out of the thing. We don't, we don't experience right. distance. Um, I remember growing up, you know, a long distance call, we could, you know, I was born on one side of the Hudson and Manhattan was on the other side and you could look over there, but don't make a phone call to there. That's a right. phone call. You know, yeah, it's a dollar a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Walk across the bridge. We would do that. You know, we knew people that lived on the other side. Walk across a mile and a half to go ahead. Let's do it. Uh -huh. And and there were costs to distance. They were built into the technology, actually. Right. And and right. that's gone. And we don't have a substitute for it. And I mean, I, I'm I'm of the school that it's all really early. It's not. This is not, really early. This is yeah. really early. We're we're at we the beginning know. times. Yeah, we didn't know and we barely do now, right? 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't know at all. 10 years ago, we sort of did. And now we barely do. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Like we and, know and that it, there's something wrong, but we're not quite sure how to fix it. And, and even if you don't know, it's kind of like, are there words for this, right? You right. Know, so all of our prepositions are tied to the physical world, over, under, around, through, besides, within. These are all physical things where you, there's locations to all of that. And even the way we talk about, you know, a website, like it's a real place with a domain right. that you visit and you browse as if it's a real thing. Well, those metaphors work, but they're also wrong. And, and, but there are words, you know, like, you know, that we pick up from other languages, what deja vu, you know, presque vu, ambiance, you know, there, these are, these are senses of something for which we now have a name. If you hear that and now you know what that is. Right. Um, and, or, you know, or dissonance. Now I know I hear what dissonance is. Ah, yeah, I know what that means. We don't have, we yeah. hardly have those for, for what we experience in, in this odd place. Maybe that's uh, part sure of urban dictionaries. Yeah. I'm sure urban dictionaries full of clever portmanteaus for, you know, some of the stuff we get on the internet. Oh, but, I yeah. I know what you mean. If these, if thinking of the internet as a physical thing, a real, space a real domain a place a site or whatnot it's part of part of the problem we're all in this in this place where oh god it's a land grab you know of sorts where you know if if it's a physical place then someone has jurisdiction of it over it somebody has ownership you can carve out your little space and build a fence around it but you know if it's if it's not real which I argue most of it isn't. I don't, you certainly can't control it in the same way and you can't. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the danger. Maybe that's, you know, we talked about tech power versus legislative power, power of the technology itself right. being perhaps usurped in many cases. Um, you know, maybe that's the thing. Maybe the, the whole approach is wrong is that we started talking about it in these terms and, and we've created a, a system where there's, overreach and 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 uh, conflict you know in much the same as you would have over real land yeah. maybe, maybe yeah. this is a self-fulfilling prophecy maybe we need to redefine it change the words change you know maybe maybe your new project can do that <laughs> i think you're totally right on this one um i'm as you're speaking i'm looking at my wall where I have a framed copy of the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace written by John Perry Barlow. Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a hand typeset printed limited edition that was done by some really, I wouldn't say famous, but well-known hackers from the Debian project like Lunar um, and uh, Ivan. Anyway, my point of that one, I encourage everybody to go read it, but um, it talks about how this is a, a civilization of the mind um, and how traditional governments don't necessarily apply and that the ethics, only ethics, the only ethics that are recognized in our, our digital world would be the golden rule. Right. And um, the interesting thing part about the interesting part about this is that through the concentration of data, we have created a concentration of power and money which has now completely inverted the jocks versus nerds paradigm. <laughs> huh. Right. Yeah. It used to be jocks were the, you know, went on to own the businesses and us nerds worked in the back office. Right. But now all of us nerds have all the money and all the power. And now the jocks want to come back and use it. 
And that's why you see things. Yeah, that's why you see, we wanted to touch about that, touch on this. This is why you see the Earn It Act, for instance. I think my take on that one is, is the yeah. government that is trying to gain editorial control over what Facebook says. So, so, so oh, what absolutely. act is this? I'm not, I'm not, uh, this is the Earn It Act, where basically oh, the earn government. My favorite headline lately Senate turns shitty Orwellian surveillance bill into pointless bill that mostly undermines free speech. That was thanks to Gizmodo. I really like that one. That's a good headline. But basically, it's it's uh, Lindsey Graham and somebody else are, have declared the entire internet overrun by child exploitation, something or other, and therefore right. they it's need always about control of saving it. the children. That, that's yeah, I, the Earn It Act. The thing that got me was, you know, this is uh, hey, we need backdoor encryption. The funny thing about that one is it's almost unenforceable. I mean, it's enforceable against companies like Facebook and Twitter, um, but it's not enforceable against me. I mean, from a mathematical standpoint, my, if I'm using good encryption using and a custom protocol, it'll look like line noise. So what does it mean? Does it mean I have to, like, how would they automatically detect it? Does it mean I would have to inject predictable signal? Like, HTTP headers or whatever in the data stream. So it looks like they're seeing what I'm seeing. I mean, that's called OBS proxy. It's been part of Tor for years. It hides Tor traffic in, you know, uh, headers of HTTP requests. You know, it, it, it hides, you know, random noise in all the places you can stash random noise where random noise is expected. Um, but if I don't have to go through that, all any observers are ever going to see is random noise on the line to and from well, my house. I Does think that make me in trouble like it's, well maybe <laughs> but i think that the idea is that they just want to hold people like facebook responsible and they figure if they can go after facebook they can make facebook police it and turn over whatever they want and, and you know, right yada, yada, yada. under threat but, of uh, under yes. threat of prosecution which is why exactly. how they're going to get editorial control over what facebook exactly exactly right and, yeah sorry but ultimately i mean it's I, I, I don't know. What you're saying is that, you know, if you have good encryption and whatnot, you're not going to see anything. So, so it goes back to, like anything else, the people who are really, really up to no good are not going to be visible anyway. All, you know, you're basically just ruining the internet for everybody else, you know, under this, you know, ridiculous notion that you're actually going to, to, to put a dent in, in real crime. This gets back a bit to... Um, Dave's original critique of the GDPR and the CCPA. If you look up GDPR compliance on Google, you're going to get, last I looked, like close to 200 million results. Almost all of those are from outfits that are selling compliance, not to Facebook and Google and Twitter, but to every other freaking website on earth. And all of them are, it's a gigantic business in obeying the letter of the law, but not the spirit, but to violate the spirit of it. And, other, and that's what we run across every time I go to a website that wants us to accept their cookies, right? And which is just basically accept being spied on, which violates the spirit of the law, but not the letter of the law. And, and that's, I mean, this is a perfect example of what happens when you put the, you know, the legislative or the regulatory cart in front of the, uh, in, in front of the horses and reins of, of, uh, of tech and 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 practice and and manners 
we don't have the manners yet, you know, and we haven't worked those out. I think we could have, but you know, we went, but it's, but it, the weird thing is that, you know, what the people behind the earn it act and the people behind the GDPR and the people behind all of these, they're going after the big guys. But what happens is they, maybe they nab the big guys. In the meantime, they've come up with a law that's just made it possible for all kinds of other violations and have changed. Right. I mean, nothing has exactly. changed the web more than, than the GDPR in the last several years. And right. what it's done is made it far less convenient for everybody. Right. Um, Without any real functional change. In with no functional that. change yeah, that's, and, that's and no the, enforcement, no enforcement at all, you know, toward, right. toward the, you know, to, toward the websites that are busy just trying to, to follow you. It's a little bit better in some weird ways with the, um, uh, uh, with the CCPA and Don Marty, an earlier guest on here, did a pretty good job of, of explaining some of how that works. But, you know, because the GDPR, and obviously the CCPA defined data collection in some way is selling your data. And now you have these things saying, you know, approve our selling your data, you know, which is just. Right. But it, but it just made things more confusing. It didn't necessarily make things better at all. Right. You know, it, did, it didn't give us, it didn't give us ways to create, it didn't open the way for new development of things that improved our agency and our sovereignty and our independence. It didn't do that at all. In fact, in some ways it made us worse because the GDPR conceived us as data subjects, data controllers and data processors were the other parties. They had the real power. We're mere data subjects. And, and with right. this, and with the CCPA, we are just consumers, right? We're not producers. We can't, doesn't even imagine that we could produce. Right. right. We only consume, which is also broken. I, you know, I just don't see that any of these things can be solved with these legislative solutions. So, I mean, no, and then no. that goes back to the original thing is that tech has to take the lead. Right. Well, I, I do want to jump on one little thing here. Um, I just read today three amazing posts by a friend of mine, Timothy Ruff, who was the CEO of Evernim for a while. Um, you mentioned on like, how could we make the world better? You know, how, how could we do all the things we want to do on the internet without harming ourselves uh, through these centralized systems? And, um, I said this earlier that being a hyperledger puts me kind of on the front lines of all this really exciting decentralized identity stuff. Well, I'll send you the link so you can include them in the notes for this episode. But, um, I believe that these things that we call verifiable credentials, um, which are actually verifiable containers, which is the argument Timothy makes, um, is going to be a pretty revolutionary way for us to, to gain capabilities and features without sacrificing um, our data, without having to be, you know, consumers, without having to click through all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, what's really cool about this is that it's sort of a digital version of the standardized shipping container. Um, and it has the same economic properties, which means that it, you get what's called uh, uh, transcontextual or was it cross-contextual value transfer. Right. If you know anything about how shipping containers revolutionized the global trade uh, system, uh, you would understand what that means. It's like, hey, you know, we used to have to like pack barrels and things. And when they got to a port, it would get all unpacked and then it would get repacked and it was called break bulk. Right. Well, that's what we do with all of the data today on the Internet is break bulk transmit, you know, transmission. And with these new verifiable containers, um, we now have the ability to transmit data uh, 
not only through space, but also time where, you know, I can give you data doc that you can then later present. And the things that you can prove about that data is that it's, you know, it came from me, it hasn't been changed, you know, all those things. And uh, um, I think it's going to allow us to create a whole new paradigm for integrating existing web services or existing online services. I think you're going to start seeing more composable services. And so, like you said, you know, we're all against the idea of terrorism and, and trafficking humans and all that kind of stuff. Of course, drug trafficking. I think that's pretty much across the board. That's normal human morality. Um, but then how do you preserve privacy and enable economy at the same time without also enabling or making that kind of economy, the only economy or rampant and, and unenforceable. Um, and these verifiable containers, I think do that because it allows us to do things like, Hey, uh, I need a KYC credential from you. I need you to prove to me that I don't need to know who you are, but I need to know that, something like a regulated US financial institution knows who you are, right? And you can prove that to me and you can give me that proof in a verifiable way so that I know that you haven't modified it. I know that it came from your regulated financial institution via you, you know, through you, you were the courier, but you were unable to change it. And then what the data you reveal to me is really just the data I need to know to get this done, which is, in this case, it could be a zero knowledge proof that you have been uh, KYC, you know, gone through the know your customer process. But I don't actually have to know that you are you or who you are. Just that, you know, if there ever is a law enforcement um, effort under judicial oversight, like warrants or whatever, then I can hand that correlation off to law enforcement and that can be walked back to the issuing um, financial institution and they can tell the law enforcement people who you are. I still don't know who you are, but you know, there can be a lot uh, investigative efforts done against this kind of digital commerce or transactions. And it's not limited to just that. It's not just finance, but you know, and commercial stuff too. It's also, you know, doing authentication. It's also doing basically any kind of transaction and we can do composable services where, you know, this service issues, this kind of credential, this service, over here issues this kind of credential. So like my DMV issues an age verification and my bank issues a you know financial verification, like a range proof that I have more than X number of dollars in the bank. And I can combine those to auth authenticate myself or authorize myself to use your service or to sign up for your club, right? Let's say it's a dating site for millionaires, right? I can prove that I have more than a million dollars and I don't, by the way, anybody want to give me a million dollars, that'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I can just worry about these issues full time. That'd be great. Um, but I could, I could, if I had more than a million dollars, prove that to you. And then I could also prove my age. So I could say, you know, I am in the group of, you know, 40 to 50 years old. And, you know, I could prove to you all the things that you need to know um, to provide a dating service for millionaires. Um, in a maximally private way, and it, it's user sovereign still in the sense that I have voluntarily given it to you. You haven't solicited it other than to say, well, to sign up, you need to prove these things about you. But it's ultimately on me at that point. And uh, anyway, these, this whole idea of these verifiable containers, which also comes from Hyperledger, and that's the indie project and everything, um, I think is going to be... I, I really do believe that this is going to be like the next 
what, big thing. I thought yeah. I would never say that in my career because I'm not yeah. one of those people who likes to carnival bark about the next big thing. But we're starting to see all kinds of use cases come out of the woodwork and there's large projects underway like uh, verifiable education credentials, like basically digital um, diplomas. And uh, you can do digital uh, um, visas and all that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting. So, so let, me, let me run that through a little bit of an interpreter. Um, sure. In part because I'm, I'm familiar with some of this and I've read Timothy's um, blog post, which we can, I hope, put in the show notes. Um, yeah. That, I mean, so when you talk about a verifiable credential, you know, your the credit card and your, everything in your wallet for the most part is a verifiable credential. You're carrying credentials around. I'm just putting it in ordinary terms right. people understand. Right. When, you, when you have a physical wallet, it contains a, a bunch of credentials that say, for example, I'm licensed to drive a car in Utah. I'm licensed to, uh, yeah. you know, I belong to, you know, I belong to this club, I, I, I have AAA, you know, all of those things, they're generally containerized in, in, in rectangles that are credit cards, you know. Right. And, and we, and we also, have ways of verifying their, their ability. Right, and, right? and, and the, the difference is that in the digital world, we can do stuff with that that yeah. we can't do in the physical world. So we can do things like, and, and again, it's like minimum disclosure for constrained use. If all you, if all if all a, a party needs to know is that I'm old enough to drive or that I have a license or that I own this thing um, yeah. or that I, I'm a member of Costco, they don't need to know any more than that. And on an electronic way, it isn't that I, I'm operating inside their system. They've given me something that's independent of their system, right? It's, I walk around with it. I've got it in my virtual wallet. Right. Which, You're the, the ways, courier. I'm the courier. In other words, we, yeah. it, we, are, we are now... We're doing, so, we're doing fully sovereign freight forwarding. In other words, we are the yeah. freight forwarders of the credentials that we carry around that we use on a need-to-know basis and don't have, that are not our ID. In other words, it's, I mean, that's, that's the biggest break in this system from the old one, which is, you know, show me your ID. No, I don't want to show you my ID. What do you need yeah. to know, right? Yeah. And, and the good thing for those parties is, you know, too much data is actually a toxic acid. I don't need to know all that other stuff. Right. You know I mean, I mean what's right. happening in the world right waste. now is that, yeah, it's toxic waste. I mean, the, the marketers of the world are getting kicked to the, kicked to the curb now to a large degree because they wanted to know everything so they can like spam you with, with messages. But if a company is busy saying, well, you know what, we don't need to know everything. And it's a real inefficient thing for us to carry all this potentially libelous and inaccurate right. cruft about a person that is not really what we wanted ever to know. Um, let's, let's simplify this thing. And that's really what's going on with all this work you're doing inside Hyperledger and, and, and with, you know, the, the allied efforts that are, that are out there. It's really a right. rethinking, a rethinking of the way that, that credentials work and, and, and making it independent of every big silo being in charge of it, of, of the whole thing. Uh, right you know each of us have you know it is just that we have sovereignty we play we play a critical role where only we really need we only we know what the other party needs to know and where it comes from like you want to know that i went to you know kenyan college i got it right here okay kenyan gave this to me i graduated in you know 2014 and uh and here it is that's all you need to know right and fine good good very good you're you're a college graduate. Fine. You know, and that's, yep. 
Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, that's I've good. My, yeah. I, I've got I've got ideas that are like beating against the forward part of my. But I think what we're saying is we're going to have to do a lot more of these. I think we've been talking yeah. for like Wait. two hours. Yeah, I think I think I think we're going on it, I, and I'm realizing it, it that I've I've got I've got think, to... I got something coming up here, as so I better get off. I've got one last idea. I'd love to close yeah go it. for it. Yeah, it was a point you made in in what you just said. Um, that I also made earlier that I want to highlight, which is you said that it makes us the courier. Okay. Now, why is that important? It's because it is very close to, if not exactly the same of what our normal social rituals are. We carry our IDs. We carry our, you know, all the data that, you know, verifiable data about ourselves. We carry it on our persons typically in our purses and our wallets. Okay. And, the reason why I have so much confidence in this verifiable containers and verifiable credentials stuff is that it mirrors that exactly, but digitally. And um, it, it evokes a kind of magic. And it goes back to like what I said earlier about Steve Jobs, where he got on, on uh, stage with the iPhone, the first iPhone, and said, oh, we don't need styluses, just use your finger. And then he flicks the screen and everybody just goes, oh my God. It's, it was a radical shift towards something that is entirely natural and familiar to everybody. And I, I think the real goal here in the end, and this may be the goal of all successful technology, software technology and internet technology is to replicate the expectations and the familiarity in anything new you create. And that's what all user sovereignty is about, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to make a system that reflects your expectations of privacy and reflects your expectations of normal human interaction, but in the digital world. Right. And with these verifiable credentials, we're going to reflect your ability to prove things about yourself. Um, you know, the way you do it in the real world is how you'll do it in the digital world. It just will be through your phone or whatever, your, your digital wallet. Right. So anyway, that was the point I wanted to say is like, you know, at the end of the, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, um, JPB says, uh, we will create a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. May it be more humane and fair than the world your governments have made before. That's ultimately yeah. what I'm trying to do. And I don't think that Facebook and Twitter are humane and fair anymore. And, and, and nor is the giant system around them that the laws being made to thwart them uh, right. enable, you know, which is like, it's just not, it's not just them. They're, they're to, to some degree, right. they're, they're giant red herring, but they are more than a herring. They're like a giant shark, but they're, it's kind of like right. a giant red shark, maybe. It's what uh, everybody aspires that's to be. That's terrifying. <laughs> right? Nobody yeah. wants to be a giant red shark. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I pick on Facebook and Twitter because they're what every social-related technology aspires to be. And I think we should change that. I would never want my startup to grow up to be like Facebook, ever. Not in a million years. Not that I have a startup, but I'm just saying, you know, like if I did, I wouldn't want it to be did. Facebook. Well, thank yeah. you so much for doing this. I think we're, I suspect yeah, we're going to have to do this again. In yeah, fact, this might be two episodes worth. I don't know. Well, but hopefully every- next time there will be one other person on, on my website that's helping. <laughs> helping mm, yeah, that'll be. I'll sign up. You I can promise. double the number of people on, um, yours, uh, on your, on your, your I, uh, 100% so, growth. So for everyone listening, come find us on Twitter. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the irony. nice. But yeah, so seriously though, find us on Twitter because that's where we will share the information about the episode until we have a better way right convenient more so, humane yeah. and exactly. fair way <laughs> so we're reality to cast on twitter and as soon as dave tells us about his new project we promise to share 
This is great. All right. Thanks for having me. Until next time.